You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Healthcare freedoms and why I want my country back. Dear fellow patriot, patriotess, like many of you, I'd originally planned to carry a sign. The one I'd worked on pictured a witch doctor with the face of, it kills me to say it, our president, with a bone through his nose and that African-type paint on his cheeks. Under that, I had written, Indonesian Muslim welfare thug hands off my health care, you Kenyan socialist baby grandma killer. I thought it looked pretty good, but then I ran it by my son, Todd. He's the artistic one in the family. Well, Mom, he said to me, it's a little busy. We got to talking about my concerns, and because I have so many of them, he suggested I go the flyer route. The last I heard, our God-given right to mimeograph has not been taken away. Chairman Obama's left us with that, at least. And Todd assures me that this will work just as well as a picket sign. The key, Mom, is to hand these to as many people as possible. He then gave me the T-shirt I'm wearing, which I unfolded and held before me to read. Big dyke, I said. And Todd said exactly. A dyke, he explained, is someone who holds back the flood of encroaching socialism. And that pretty much sums me up in a nutshell. Let's add the word proud to that, I said. So out came the press-on letters and voila. Made such a turnaround, that boy of mine. Back at college, he was as liberal as they come, all down with Bush and Satan Cheney 08. But that's what our universities do now. They brainwash. I said, to get out into the real world, and then you'll see. I said, pay some taxes for once in your life, and you'll be mad as hell, too. And that's exactly what happened. After graduating with a useless degree in dance history... Todd got a job at our local community college, working in the admissions office, and when he saw the bite Uncle Sam was taking out of his paycheck, he came right around, I'll tell you what. So did his roommate, Miles. The two of them met in college and have been thick as thieves ever since. I actually sometimes call him Shadow, not because he's black, which he is, but because he and my son are so close. It's actually him who Xeroxed these flyers for me. Both Miles and Todd are familiar with protest marches, mostly from their misguided college days, but as my son said, walking is walking, Mom. And whether you're for torture or against it, you're going to need to drink lots of water. That's rule number one, stay hydrated. You'll also need some good, comfortable shoes and a hat that'll keep the sun off your face. I got a sombrero and hung tea bags off the brim, but Todd said it sent a mixed message, like I supported illegal immigration, which I don't. He said it was better to wear this cone-shaped thing, a wimple, he called it, though it looked to me more like a dunce cap. He said, Mom, please, a little sophistication. David Sedaris is the author of Barrel Fever, Holidays on Ice, Naked, Me Talk Pretty One Day, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, When You Are Engulfed in Flames, and Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk. He's a contributor to PRI's This American Life. His new book is Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. Thank you for joining me, David. Oh, thanks for having me back. David, this book is filled with wonderful essays, and it made me laugh constantly. But what I was struck by as I read it was that I think the strength of your writing lies not so much in your ability to make us laugh, 
But in the poignant moments, in the powerful observations, in between all the laughter that strike us as really true and right. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, I mean, I, I think when I read other people's work, it, it's always good to, it's hard to read somebody else while I'm writing, but it's good at the same time because I'll read somebody else and I'll think, oh, that's right. We're supposed to know what people look like. Oh, that's right. You know, sometimes just the smallest detail can just make something seem more, you know, can just make something seem more real to you. Um, it can even seem banal. You know, it can be the sound a a fork make, makes against a plate in a restaurant, but it can just set you right there. And so sometimes I forget, because when you're writing about things that happen to you, you think, oh, everyone knows what my sister Gretchen looks like, and oh, everybody knows what it's like to eat at that place. And then I remember, gosh, no, actually they don't. One of the things that uh, struck me in this book was you're, a, you're just a wonderful travel writer, and you get to travel a lot. And I'd like to talk about uh, capturing the, uh, the literal flavor of places, especially in this book, your essay on uh, traveling to China, which doesn't make me want to go there. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, if you write for a travel magazine, you have to say good things about the place. Because if a travel magazine, it's all about the ads that surround your story. So they're, so they're not really interested in, in hearing anything negative about, about any place. And I, So I don't go to magazines. I don't go to places for travel magazines. Like I just went to Poland. And I know I could have gotten, gone for a travel magazine and gotten everything paid for, but I thought, but then too I'd be under pressure to write about it. And I just wanted to go, and if I wound up with something to write about, then I would. But I wasn't going to have to force it. So, yeah, I went to China. Um, I never liked Chinese food. I just never liked it. And, you know, sometimes you never like, like, I never, I don't know, I guess I didn't know much about Korean food, but I wasn't very excited about Korean food. And then I went to Korea, and I loved it. God, the food was just fantastic. And I never liked Chinese food, and then I went to China, and I really didn't like Chinese food. (laughs) I just really didn't like it. I was just... I know it's unfair of me maybe to think, you know, I go to Japan a lot and to think, well, gosh, they're, they're you know, they're, they're, they're right near each other. Probably they're a lot alike. But the United States isn't a lot like Mexico, so it's probably unfair of me to think that way. But no, I was pretty shocked when I went to China. I was pretty surprised, you know, like somebody spitting on the floor of a restaurant. It just seemed like so naughty to me. You have a lot of fun in that essay talking about the kind the behavior of people and just the the general vibe in China and also you do a lot of great things with language uh dropping words here and there to make us laugh and I'd like you to talk about just uh creating the ebb and flow in your humor when you're writing about a place like China and just dropping words left and right I, I think it uh gives us both a flavor of who you are and of where you are at the same time. Um, well, you know, I know it makes such a difference if you speak a language or if even you can speak a little bit of it, you know, before you go to a place. Like I just went to Sweden, right? And I knew everyone in Sweden was going to speak English, but I studied Swedish really hard for, uh, what was it, like 
maybe just a month before I went. But I mean, I studied it hard for a month before I went. And there's actually a lot you can learn in a month. I like to use these language CDs. And so then when I got there, <clears throat> Hugh, my boyfriend, didn't. He, he didn't study Swedish. But we'd be out at lunch, and I would say, that woman at the next table just said 12. She said 12, and she said girl. I think she has 12 girls. You know, it just changes everything. It puts you in it in a way. Like you can walk into a store and you could say, you know, or like in in Japan and in Germany and in Poland and in Sweden and in Spain and in Italy. I can walk into a store and I could say, I would like to buy something now. And they just, they just double over laughing because... It's just weird. I mean, usually if you want to buy something, you just go ahead and buy it. You don't announce to the store that you're going to do it. And it just it just makes me such more, so much more invested in the place. And I didn't do that with China, you know, because I was going to Japan first. So I spent my study time boning up on my Japanese, you know, so rather than letting my Japanese lie and then learning any Chinese. And I think it might have been different if I'd learned to say anything in Chinese, I, I know that my trip would have been a bit different. I would have felt, uh, I would have felt, I would have felt like, okay, I spent a month studying or two months studying, you know, and again, I know it's not much, but, but like I deserve to be here. I earned the right to be here. And I, I didn't do that with China. And, and I regret that. It sounds like uh, your Pimsleur CDs enable you to become an international eavesdropper. They do, and they've also be, and also I think because of my age, like I can be the older guy, you know, the older guy with a pocket square who walks into a store in Poland and says, "Excuse me, are you a Polish woman? Do you speak Polish?" <laughs> you know, all excited, like he's traveled the world looking for a Polish woman, and now finally he's found one. And it just, it's like putting money into a slot machine. It just works. It just works. And people's reception to you is just, uh, you get such a warm reception and you get a lot of laughs. And, I, you know, I don't care if people laugh with me or at me. I really don't care. I don't draw a distinction there. Well, that's, I think, uh, brings us to your characters, of whom you are the primary character. And you have a lot of fun with yourself. And I'm wondering... Uh, if you talk about creating yourself in prose, you have one way of speaking when you're talking to somebody, and that's not going to be exactly the way you write about yourself, nor is it going to be necessarily the way you write your speech down, your quotes down. Well, I think, I mean, I think anybody who especially writes humor, you know, there's you and then there's the character of you, you know, and you rarely, you rarely make yourself look better than you actually are, right? Like you don't, it's, I, I mean, I can't really think of anyone who writes humor who makes themselves sound like very competent, you know, like the, the uh, I mean, you always, you always make yourself sound dumber than you really are and more inept than you actually are. Uh, so yeah, I think that's more the character of, of the difference between me and the character of me. I mean, I'm not saying I'm, like Hugh, my boyfriend, right? He is a capable person. I mean, he's, I, I don't know anyone more capable. I don't care what it is. He's capable at fixing a car, capable at, re at wiring a house, capable at cooking. Oh, goodness, 
anything I can do, he can do better, right? Anything you can do, he can do better. He can do anything better than just about anybody. And But also over time, he's become a character too, right? So there are things that every now and then he will do something that's out of character for him, but I probably wouldn't write about it because it's out of character for him. It's not the character that he is, that I've established for him on paper. Are the people you write about, do you ever do composites to just make things easier? Because you have you write in such a tight format. Um, that's something like I used to do, like in earlier books. But like with The New Yorker, it doesn't really work to do that. Um, you mean they don't like Like your- if I'm writing like some something like... You know, healthcare freedoms. You know, which is like I, in this book, I include. I wrote all these essays for. Or <clears throat> I met a lot of teenagers over the years who participate in forensics, which is kind of a cross between speech club and debate. And they memorize essays and stories, and they recite them competitively before judges. And so, I've met a lot of kids over the years who would say, "Oh, I went to state finals with six to eight black men, or a plague of ticks," and. But the, the, the problem with that is, A, that they would have to cut a thousand words out of the stories, and B, that I didn't feel like they had a, a passionate narrative voice. So I wanted to write six monologues, dramatic monologues, that teenagers could recite competitively before judges. So one of them was the thing that I... Uh, it's about a woman who's like kind of in, in the tea party, and her son has kind of basically pinned a kick-me sign to her back and sent her off to this rally. And I really like how, I really like her narrative voice. I like how how positive she is in, I mean, I, I, I like how, how dumb she is, you know, just how raw, but how dumb she is and how positive she is. I like that. I like that uh, combination. Anyone, because maybe because I'm not, uh, because, because I'm plagued by self-doubt, anyone who's sure of themselves has my ear. You know, it doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. Crackpot, that's why I like listening to Crackpot Radio. Like the people who call in and uh, on the sorts of stations that my dad likes to listen to. I listen to those people forever. They're so sure of themselves. And I just I just listen to him and I think, what would that be like? What would that be like to be what would it be like to have that confidence? And to be and and what I like about it too is that it's it's it seems so misplaced, you know, the confidence. It's like somebody who's driven a wily e. coyote. They're fifty miles out beyond the edge of the cliff and they don't really realize it. Yeah. And I like that moment when you're just gone beyond the cliff and you're just about just that moment when you realize that you're going to fall one of the things I think that uh, I thought was so much fun in this book were your stories of the writing life and being on tour as a writer this isn't something I don't think you, you've written about before and I think it's something that having spoken to so many writers who are on tour I find it really interesting that your tales of being on tour. And I'm wondering what brought you to, to write about this. Well, I feel like I'm either in a room alone or I'm on tour, right? And I go on tour twice a year. So right now I'm on a tour that I started on April 2nd 
I've been to a city a day since April 2nd, and this is May 21st. Well, I was in New York for three days, and I was in, but I had things every day, and in Toronto for two days, and I had things every day. But other than that, it's been a city a day. I took four days off, a little vacation, but it's been a city a day, and I'm not done. I go until June 7th, right? And I like it, and I'm going to be really sad when it's over. But I feel like for every tour, at the end of every tour, I could write a story just about the mood in the country and things that I've observed over the course of that tour and amazing things that people have told me. And there'll be a handful of people that stick out. I mean, I mean lots of people, but I mean a handful of people who, who at the end of the tour I'll think, I'll think, uh, gosh, I was in... I was in New York last week, and I met a young man named Thelonious Frumpkin, a 15-year-old kid named Thelonious Frumpkin, and I think he should have his own show. I mean, I just talked to him for like four minutes, and everything he said was fascinating to me. He answered all my questions, was very frank about them, and I could, there'll be, like, you know, maybe he'll be covered over by somebody else in the next three weeks, but I, I feel like I could I could write a story at the end of every tour. Yeah. I love your story about the the Costco signings because you, it's so uh, incongruous, given the artistry, the poetry, the humor, the kind of uh, NPR uh, appeal, as contrasted with Costco, which is like a flat warehouse full of tables of books and nothing in product. Right. I did a I did a little signing at a Costco in in, in uh Canada. And you know what's interesting to me is how quickly the book business is changing. I mean, how quickly. Like I went on a tour for my last book, what well, it was like two and a half years ago, I feel like. And even since then things have changed. Like when they tell me the number of ebooks that I've sold um with this book as opposed to the last two, you know, just how that grows in leaps and bounds like every year, like every, I don't know how many, every day like more people get Kindles and what, or iPads and, and so forth. So, so many bookstores are gone. And I just wonder what it will be like, like 10 or 20 years from now. I, I would really, you know, as much as wanting a book, all I ever wanted was a book tour. You know, I was living in Chicago, and there weren't any real bookstores in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, there was a Dalton Books, you know. They sold calendars and stuff. But I moved to Chicago, and I, and I was down the street from this amazing bookstore, and people I revered came there, you know. Tobias Wolf came to my neighborhood. Richard Ford came to my neighborhood. Joyce Carol Oates came to my neighborhood. And I would literally sit at their feet, and get to hear them and get to watch as people ask questions and they answer. And maybe I couldn't afford the book. You know, it was a lot for me to afford a hardcover book, but maybe I had a paperback of their last book or maybe I just couldn't afford it at all and I just kind of quietly slipped away afterwards. But it made a real impression on me. And and I always thought, you know, if when it's my turn, when I have a book and I'm sitting behind that table... I'm going to 
I'm going to have a lot of fun with it. And I sure will miss it when that's not... Like one of the things I've been doing on this trip is I've been having people... I like to eat dinner while I sign books. And so I have straight men cut my meat for me and then I have it, I have them fork it into my mouth while I sign their book. And it just feels right to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're having too much fun, I can tell. <laughs> One time I put a tip jar on my book signing table. This was like, this was like three or four books ago. I put a tip jar because everyone has a tip jar now. And so I thought, well, I'll have a tip jar too. And, and I made $4,000. And I didn't even do it every night. My God. People see a tip jar, they just put money in it. Boy, that's a good idea. <laughs> uh, if you had one on your table here, I'd put money into it. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. My wife would like that. Uh, one of the things you say in this book at, at one point is that um, when you when you talk before you talk to somebody, sometimes you want to ask them. You say, "I need to know who you voted for in the last election," and I think that that's kind of a key in a sense to many of the pieces in this book. Well, that particular story had to do with I was in a uh, customer service line at the Denver airport, and this woman was in front of me, and we were both noticing the same thing, and it was like. You know, people are such slobs when they travel now. And it was a young man, and he had, he he looked like he was about, I don't know, 17 years old. And he had his hair in like orange dreadlocks, and he had a t shirt on with like a filthy word written on the t shirt, right? And the woman and I kind of noticed it at the same time. And then she noticed that he had appeared to have a baby, you know, and she turned around and she said, uh, you know, why is it all the only, all the wrong people, only the wrong people are having babies now. And I, and I, and that was a moment when I wanted to say, you know what, I, I'm like ready to agree with you about a lot of, a lot of this stuff. But first I need to know who you voted for in the last election. <laughs> because you don't want to be fitting into someone else's, like I'm, I'm happy to fit into the, fit into their agenda if it's just an old person crabby agenda. You know, I'm right there. I'm right with you. Or let's make fun of that person agenda. But if it fits into like a, you know, kind of like a Fox News agenda, then I got to kind of draw the line and then side with the kid in the filthy T-shirt instead. Yeah, it's hard to know uh, which direction, who to rebel against these days. (laughs) Well, it often is. It often is. And I figured whenever I try to write about something, I think... I think, how can I write about this in a way that everyone will be able to relate to it? And usually I can find a way a way in, right? Like I wrote a story in the book about buying a taxidermied owl for Hugh for Valentine's Day. And I wrote the story and it didn't work. And I and I realized it didn't it just and then I rewrote it. And I wrote it when when it when I went back to it, I realized the story was really about the taxidermist. He went into a shop, and then he, he said, yeah, I got owls, and that's great. But I have these human things, too. You want to see these human things? You want to see this arm that my grandfather mummified? You want to see, I've got the skeleton of a pygmy. I've got a teenage girl's head in a plastic bag. You want to see my head in a plastic bag? And, of course, I wanted to see all of that. And so... I realized it was a story about meeting a stranger and having them look directly into your soul and identify you. 
And then once I rewrote it with that as the is my angle, then it worked because everybody knows what that's like. Maybe not with a teenager's head in a plastic bag in a taxidermy shop in London, but they've had it happen somewhere along the line. I, I think that that's uh, one of the appeals of your writing, I think, for a big segment of people is that uh, your dark inclinations and your interest in horror and your interest in the kind of the really weird stuff. At one point, you talk about uh, your diary entry for describing a centipede eating a fly as being longer than your diary entry for meeting Jan, Gene Hackman. I saw a centipede attack and kill a worm, and it was just completely, it's a, it was a horror movie. It was a horror movie right there. That You don't even need, you don't even need the scary movie. movie. You don't even need the plot. It was absolutely fascinating to me. I have like a 12-year-old boy's um, interest, uh, obsession or level of 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 fascination i think with with things like that i never i never matured for some reason beyond that i never um i don't i don't know why i'm just stunted that way my maybe because maybe because i never got interested in girls do you know what I mean? Like maybe like twelve year old boys are interested in things like that, and then they get interested in girls and they forget all about it. But I was never interested in girls, so I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm still right back there. No, actually, I no, I I'm like that too. And okay, <laughs> I think it's I think it's uh, there's a pretty big segment of the population, and I talked to Mary Roach about this. That, oh, she's great, isn't she? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of us who exist in a quantum state between. 12-year-old and 85 years old. You're either kind of a geeky teenager or you're a crabby old man. And I think you kind of, there's a flux between those two. Sometimes you have to like toe the middle of the road and and pretend to be an adult for a few minutes to get from A to B. But I think that that uh, seems to explain your ability to walk the middle of the road really well too. Well, I'm going to, I have to, when this tour's over, I'm going to Italy for a uh, literary festival. And the reason I agreed to go is that I get to fly into Turin. And there's a store in Turin called Nautilus. And it's a medical curiosity store. Like It's like no other place on earth. I, I went crazy the last time I was in that place. And they have a website, and I've looked at things on their website, but you got to see it in person, really, to... To, to you can't believe you can't believe that you're allowed to leave the country with things like this that, that, that they've got there. It's like the vivarium in the East Bay. It's a store where you can get reptiles, but they just it's better than the zoo. Huh. <laughs> live reptiles? Live reptiles. They See, have. nothing scares me more. Nothing scares me more. But I go into those like I was whenever I'm in Florida, I go into a reptile store just so I could be re, just so I could. Be, remember what revulsion feels like. Well, these guys have these giant Komodo dragons. They're about this big, and they are gnarly. Those are, they're, they're dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can't, on, on YouTube, three clicks, you click on anything, and then you take three more steps, and you're at a Komodo dragon eating a live <laughs> deer. 
It just isn't that crazy how that happens. It's Three six clicks degrees and you're of there. separation. Yep. <laughs> Three clicks of separation. I think you've discovered a whole new phenomenon, Dave. <laughs> We're all just three clicks from a Komodo dragon. dragon. Uh, I was really interested by your decision to include these the forensics in this book. I think they're really superbly well written. I, and my favorite is your horror story, I Break for Traditional Marriage, which is a absolutely picture-perfect marriage of humor and horror, which are really opposite sides of the same coin. Oh, th- well, when I go on tour, I usually start with what became these forensic pieces. I like to start with like a little monologue written in the voice of a character that's not too long, you know, takes seven to ten minutes. And just sometimes it's sort of politically inspired. Not, not It's usually not overt that way. But this is a guy and gay marriage becomes legal. And so he realizes that up is down and down is up. And if... So his own marriage is meaningless now, now that gay marriage is legal. His own marriage means nothing. So he might as well kill his wife and child. And so he just changes. He just becomes a completely different person over the course of a few pages, and he just goes on a killing spree. And it's so much fun to write. It was Because I never understood when people have said that in the past, like that gay marriage would invalidate their marriage. Like I don't, I've been with my boyfriend for 22 years. I don't want to marry him. No one wants to come to our wedding. You know what I mean? Like I think if you love somebody, just keep it to yourself. You know, I don't, I don't really see the point in, in anybody getting married. I think rather than legalizing gay marriage, they should just all make all marriage illegal. I think that's what they should do instead. That way no one will ever have to go to a wedding again. And I think we'd all be better off for it. Oh, yeah, or pay for one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some... Well, but I do think it's interesting that it's you can't put on a marriage, you can't put on a wedding without homosexuals. You know, they've been toiling in the wedding industry since, it, you know, that's who makes the gowns and the cakes and, you know, hands out the... delivers the chicken or the fish or the beef, whichever one you've checked off, Um so you can't really have a marriage without them. Uh, but this was, I kind of like in that story how over the top it is, because that's usually where I go when I'm writing fiction, just completely, completely over the top. And there's like a lot of, I like a lot of bloodshed. Oh, there's, that's, a, that's a great Wiley Coyote moment. Wiley gets way far off the cliff in that one. <laughs> uh, one of the things I liked about this book is your low-key politics in this and uh, stealth politics. And it comes out right at the beginning with the doctor's uh, Dennis Without Borders, where you give us just a great portrait of something, a healthcare system that just works. You know, I <clears throat> I wrote that story about my dentist and my periodontist in France. And I can't tell you how many people over the years have said to me, I would never go to a doctor or a dentist in, in, in France or in Europe. And they seem to have the idea that you don't have to study there. You know, but the doctors and dentists, they study just as much as they do in the United States, and they have just as much equipment, and it's just as sophisticated as it would be. Like, even if you go, like, into Normandy, the backwater Normandy, 
doesn't mean you're going to find sophisticated equipment there. So I've never... The, the difference is, the main difference is, they don't really have the lawsuits there that you have here, right? So I went to my doctor in Paris because I found, like, it felt like a deviled egg tucked under my skin. And so I went, and the doctor looked at it, and I, th- I was sure I had cancer, and he felt it, and he said, ah, it's nothing. He said, it's a little, little fatty tumor. Dogs get them all the time. And, and I said, well, should I have it removed? And he said, why would you want... I guess you could if you wanted to, but I don't really... I said, oh, that's okay. I'll just, I'll just pull my bathing suit up a little higher. Like, he made me feel so vain for even thinking about it. But I think it's because they don't have the lawsuits that you have in the United States, so the doctor doesn't have to worry that I'm going to go back to him and I'm going to say, it's not a fatty tumor. It's like a double fatty tumor. And you said just the word fatty once, so I get to, you know... Uh, sue you and take away your license. That said, they do, they do load you down with a lot of medication there. You know, like for anything, they give you so many pills there. But it's not like it's not like they they're costing anybody any money really. I went to my dentist. I got a, I had a, decided I had a. I decided that pus was leaking down the back of my throat because I'd studied Swedish, and now it was time to go to Sweden, and then I felt like a weird taste in the back of my mouth. And so I decided that I had an abscessed tooth and that pus was leaking down the back of my throat. So I called a dent. I was in England, and so I called the dentist in England 9 o'clock on a Friday morning. And she said, well, can you come in at 11? And so I went in at 11 o'clock in the morning. She took x-rays. She looked at my teeth. She said, I'm sorry. She said, I don't see anything no, I do not see anything wrong. And and then she apologized, and she said, I'm afraid I'm going to have to charge you anyway. And it was $70 for like an emergency last-minute appointment with x-rays, paying. I mean, I'm, I have my green card in England now, so I could go to the... I could. I just haven't applied for my NHS number, so it could have been free. But instead, I went to like a private dentist, and it cost $70, but it was $70. It was nothing. I mean... How much would that be in in the United States? You could buy a small sedan for the same price. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I thought was really great was uh, the piece where we where you we get the overseas because you're traveling. We get the overseas perspective on American politics in France, and it's so funny. At you, it's at the piece that called Obama. <laughs> And it, you just have lead us up to this great joke uh, where um, they're talking about uh, how how surprising it is that we elect the black president. Well, it was interesting in during that election. Um, you know, French people loved to tell me before the election that Obama was not going to win because Americans are racist. You know, and they know that because they spent a weekend in South Carolina once, or they know that because there's a couple TV shows they watch, and they were just completely convinced that Obama was not going to win. And then when he did win, they their attitude was like, how smart of you to elect the president we thought you should elect. <laughs> really, it was really irritating, really irritating. Um, but when you, plus when you're the American, you know, like in Normandy, we, you know, we were living in a little village and 
you know, you and I are the only Americans, so we became the go-to people, you know, the, the people you ask everything of if you have a question about America. And in England now, we live in this little village in the country, and it's the same thing. I mean, everybody's English. So people have been coming to me like, what do you need semi-automatic weapons for? You know, what, do you, what does a person need those for? And now I, I know what people need them for. You need a semi-automatic weapon to shoot the TV you had before you bought your new one. It's on YouTube. That's, if you click four times after the Komodo dragon, it's somebody shooting their old television set with a semi-automatic weapon on YouTube. My son wants me to shoot my old TV set because he wants me to buy a new one. He works at Costco. He says, Dad, they've got this a new one. It's bigger. It's bigger. It's bigger. You must get <laughs> but I love the idea that you have to shoot it. You know, they yeah. got that's the only way. You know, it's the most humane way. Otherwise, it could come back to life, and you don't know what it might do. I guess you can't put them to sleep. <laughs> put them down. You do such a great job of creating characters, uh, unique characters to your stories, in, in such a compact space. And I'm wondering if when you write these stories, if maybe they start out longer, and then you just carve them down to, to find the story within the, the block of words that you first created? Well, every now and then I feel like you meet somebody and they just said the slightest thing and it just kind of told you so much about them. I met a guy with a beard a few weeks ago and I said, does your father have a gun? He said, no, but my father's roommate does. <laughs> and I said, your father has a roommate? <laughs> and that just told me so much, The very you know, just the fact that he had said my father's roommate. And... I met somebody the other day, I was just looking in my notebook here, who it was sort of the same thing. They just said the slightest thing, and I thought, gosh, that just, that just little thing that you said, just, like you could write a pair, you know, you could write three paragraphs about somebody, or you could just put the phrase, my father's roommate, and, and do it that way. Uh, I mean... I mean, I, I do feel like we're types, a lot of us. You know, I'm, I'm a type. I mean, you know, you just look at the airport and you say, oh, there's that type, there's that type, there's that type. But you don't want to, you know, I mean, it's always kind of, it's a disservice in a way, you know, to, to define someone as a type. But I, I do feel like we're types, but then we have the extra thing on top of it that makes us who we are. But I mean... We could be categorized easily enough. I mean, we all have to be, believe that we're beyond that. But, you know, like every now and then you see yourself. You see your type in the airport or you see your, your type walking down the street. And It's so depressing. <laughs> well, sometimes you recognize your type. You know, you hope that that's your type. I kind of saw my type in the airport this morning. I want to go up and say something like, hey, look at us. But <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. One of the things, too, that strikes me when I'm reading your pieces, they're super easy to read. You just whip through them. But then if you kind of step back a, a bit, the writing and plotting is often very complicated and really uh, twisty. You'll start out with a recent memoir. Then we're back in your childhood. Uh, I'm thinking of the piece where you are talking to the tech service guy. And and then you whip whip us back to your childhood in Gretchen and Gretchen and and I think the 
that kind of construction is really interesting. And I'm wondering how, again, whether it's like a, those little a geode where something grows from the inside out or from the outside in. Well, sometimes I don't like... One of the things... I started writing when I was 20. And before that, it just seemed like a horrible chore to me. And I think part of the reason it felt like a horrible chore was that the way that I was taught to write, you know, that you have a topic sentence and then the rest of your story is is in service of your topic sentence, right? So to say, crazy things can sometimes happen when you buy an owl, right? Well, instead, I got into it a different way about owls being popular now, right? That's how I kind of got into the story. And so talking about the popularity of owls and how they're on keychains and how they're on placemats and how they're on everything now kind of led to the story of me going to the taxidermist and buying Hugh, the owl. So like, there was a story I wrote about um, this girl who I dated in high school, right? Because I decided in high school that I was going to be the guy with the black girlfriend. That's who I was going to be. And, and this poor girl who I chose... Anyway, I was just completely being uh, using her and being unfair to her. It, but the way that I got into that story was this guy who called me a couple of years ago on the phone and tried to sell me a cell phone, right? I mean, he called me at home and he tried to sell me a cell phone. And that's sort of the way that I got into that story. And I think I'd written about the guy calling me on the cell phone in my diary. And, it, and I don't know. I thought, well, what if I add another sentence to this? And then I added one more sentence, and it to, so it led, exploit. It led to the story about me exploiting that girl who I met in high school, just by adding one more sentence to a diary entry. So that, that happens sometimes. And then I don't get rid of the diary entry. I don't get rid of the, the growth sort of at the, at the top of the, at the front of the story. That's what, that's what it is, kind of a growth I mean, a lot of these, there's stories with tumors, you know. I guess so. You know, when I think that the story Loggerheads is just such a, a beautifully written piece. It's really funny and <laughs> really terrible in some ways, but it's also gorgeous and poignant. And uh, I'd like you to, uh, I'm just curious whether the core of that, which is uh, the young man, young boy's uh inclination to collect, pick up animals and put them in a, in a jar and say, you're my pet now, came first, or if the, the memory of you and Hugh in Hawaii came first. Hugh and I were in Hawaii, and that kind of was my way. I always wanted to write, when I was young, my next door neighbor and I, uh, his mom took us to the beach, and we were walking along the beach early one morning. We saw these sea turtles hatching and crawling into the ocean. And we scooped up as many as we could, and we brought them home, and we kept them in our bedrooms, right? We added some salt to water, and we made salt water, and we were going to raise these sea turtles. And they died horrible deaths, horrible deaths. And I know there have been people in the audience during those stories that will, like, how could you? And I say, well, I was 12. You know, you kind of got to have to forgive a 12-year-old, you know, for something like that. But I always wanted to write about those sea turtles because of something that happened while I had the turtles in my bedroom was the first time that I saw uh, 
my mother took me to the library, and I went into the men's room, and I saw these two men having sex in the men's room. And at the same time that I had these turtles rotting in my bedroom. But actually, the story was more about my friendship with with the boy next door and us growing out of the ages that we were in and not knowing what we were growing. We knew what we were growing out of, but I certainly didn't know what I was growing into. I was afraid. I saw those guys in the library, and I was afraid that was going to be me, that I would be have to live this life on the run and do things in the bathroom bathrooms of libraries. Um, and, you know, there's some a lot of times, you know, you figure out where you're going to end the story, you know, because you don't... If, if people come up to you afterwards and say, then what happened? And you think, okay, I guess I didn't do my job, you know, but that was one of those stories and that the woman, uh, you know, a lot... A lot ha- wound up happening to my next-door neighbor, to my best friend when I was a kid. Like, a lot wound up happening to that guy. Um, but that seemed the place to end the story for for its purposes. You know, it seemed... A, a, because continuing from there, I don't know, what it just made it a completely different thing. And having it be about the turtles and about the library and about my friendship with the neighbor and about Hawaii, that seemed enough ingredients. If I added this other ingredient... It just would have bubbled over and overtaken the earth and scorched it. Uh, as as it is, well, as as much as I enjoy scorched earth stories, uh, I think it's just a beautiful piece because we, it's a, a perfect example of showing and not telling. We just read through all these things, and and as readers. It strikes me, too, that one of the things that's really fun about reading your stories is, in a sense, they're like mysteries. You'll give us a kind of a bunch of different things and then let us put them all together. It's, he's telling us about this, then we're hearing about this, and, we're, and then it's that final line. And I think that's one thing you really excel at, is your final lines are always poetic, almost always, just like pure poetry. And they just seem like, you just go, wow. Oh, that means so much to me. I, I feel like and because you're deciding where to end a story, right? Often you have to end the story with, oh, I, I don't know, I think of it as ending the story with words because I'll think, okay, like I don't have any dramatic ending, so I have to end the story with words. And to me, that's kind of the hardest ending. Like I don't ever want to do that sort of, you know, like one thing you notice a lot, like, oh, I'm sorry, you notice it a lot in This American Life. You... You know, at the end of the story, the author kind of resums the story. You know, sums up what happened, and the fir- during the story, and then like, and that's what I learned out of it. And it's like I don't, I don't, I, I, I can admire that sometimes, but I don't know how to do it myself. You know what I mean? So, I would akin say your stories or essays are very closely to poetry in the way they're structured. Uh, they seem to be um, beautifully woven threads that come together right here, and that you can't imagine them going any further. Well, I mean, off, I mean, because often I feel like, you know, I've got like let's say four or five different strands going in a story, and then you kind of need to tie them up at the end, but you don't want to be gimmicky about it. I, I have a story that I just closed with for the New Yorker yesterday. And I sent it 
to my editor. I sent her like the, I don't know, the 15th draft or something. And and she read it through and her her note on the next to the last page was, nice landing. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I took off and I came back to the beginning of the story. But you don't want to do it in a gimmicky way. And so her note, nice landing, was like, you know, I came back to where I was at the beginning, and then I was kind of taxiing to the gate, you know, for another half a page. Uh, that's well, I'd say that's true of of every piece in there I just read. I, there, they all have just really nice landing. Seems right. Oh, thank you. I, you know, a lot of that comes from being on tour, and I read a story out loud, and I go back to the room, and I rewrite it, and I read it, and I rewrite it, and and I'll realize, okay, people. I'll go back to my room and I'll look at my notes and on page four, people coughed all through page four. And that means that when it's on the page, they're going to skim, right? Like they're cough, coughing and they're not listening anymore when they're coughing. And I, and I go back and I look at my story and I say, okay, page four was all information. So I have to disperse that information throughout the story because I'm putting, it's in a block here and it's not working. People are, are, I'm losing the, the listener right here. So it helps me a lot, and it, it tells me that I need to, and, I, and I'll lay the pages out. Let's say it's a 12-page story, and I look, because I make, you know, big wild check marks when people laugh, and I'll, I can put it on a graph, you know, the, the sound that the story makes. And I, and I always want to, I don't want to force it, but I like to end with that, oh, you know the noise people make? Like, I like, I, I make that noise a lot when I'm reading something. Oh, like I was just punched in the stomach. Not in a, like a soft punch in the stomach. You know what I mean? Like it just kind of knocks something out of me. And I like hearing the audience make that sound. Like if you try to, if you try to apply it like to an essay that's just kind of a light essay that's not, you know, where it doesn't belong, then it just becomes gimmicky and it just doesn't doesn't work. But like in the story about the sea turtles, you know, it seemed appropriate for that that story. And I felt like when the audience made that noise at the end, I felt like, yeah, I earned that. You know, like <laughs> I worked for it twelve pages, and uh, and I, I I feel like I earned it in a way. It's a magnificent piece. Are we gonna ever gonna hear the rest of the boys' story? Uh, I, gosh, I don't know. I would have to work with him on that, you know. I'd have to work with him. Have you ever done that? You know, I've gotten, people have written to me before and they've said, you need to write my life story, you know, because you wouldn't (laughs) believe the things that have happened to me and I can't write it myself. You need to write it. You need to write it. And, 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 the subtext is like, steer clear of me. That's the subtext of all those letters. But I think it would be interesting. Well, they kind of didn't, Dave Eggers kind of do that um, with his story about the Lost Boys of Sudan. Didn't he kind of do that? To a degree, I guess. But I, I'm just thinking that that particular boy, you seem to have, that story seems to still have some momentum in you when we were just talking now. It seems like it's well, there waiting was to because escape. He was very, my best friend growing up, he was very handsome. You know, even as a kid, he was handsome. He wasn't cute. And his family, you know, he came from kind of a fine family. 
And, and you know, like sometimes when you see an ugly child, you think, oh, that's so good you're so young. You know, like you'll see a, an ugly five-year-old and you think, enjoy it while you can because, you know, you're going to reach an age when he's going to realize or she's going to realize that he or she is not good-looking like the other people in the class and then their life's kind of, once they start comparing themselves to other people, right? I mean, like you're always going to think he got more for Christmas than I did, but you're not going to think he's better looking or he's cuter than I am until you reach a certain age, right? And then then your life's going to get difficult. And so that's great when you're five and you don't realize that yet. And so my friend and I, we were, I, I became increasingly aware, right, of how good-looking he was. And I don't mean that I was attracted to him because I never wasted time being attracted to straight people, um, to straight guys, I mean. Um, but then he, there was a, there was a moment... Uh, when we were teenagers, when I just had this huge, huge crush on this girl, and he completely stole her away from me, and stole her away from me, and it was like one of the most traumatic, one of the traumatic moments of my life. And so, I, I feel like you have to get a certain distance away from an incident in, in order to be able to write about it, and I still haven't gotten that distance from that incident yet. It's 40 years. I know it. <laughs> I know it. Well, it's just that feeling of being, you know... Teen trauma well, is being, really terrible. Oh, it's just the worst, isn't it? It's god-awful. But then, plus, knowing, too, that, you know, knowing inside that you're gay and that if she was your girlfriend, what was she going to get out of it, you know? But you can't admit that to anybody, so it makes it doubly confusing and and uh, painful, really. Um, well, that's a story I want to see sooner rather than later. And you well, don't need his permission to write it. Just well, when you have things in the New Yorker, they call everybody. Oh, really? I mean, they call everybody involved with the story. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he, but for that story, they called his brother and they called his mom, but he's kind of no one really knows where he is right now. He's kind of had a hard life, and nobody knows uh, how to contact him right now. That's so interesting. I've been speaking with David Sedaris. His new book is Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. Thank you for joining me, David. Oh, thanks so much for having me back. I wish I could have talked to you, too, about you say now you live by the glider place. And, and, yeah, uh -huh. the, and you have the, the prop planes that go uh -huh. overhead. That's so annoying because I live where I live. I live is just it's right by the ocean by the cement boat. And there's a cement boat off of where I live. It's like they built these cement ships for World War One, and uh. World War Two, And now they've just come to rot and rest in various places. There's one close by us where we live. So the nearby airport has these people like stump planes that come and fly uh, really low over our house. It's like having a lawn. Somebody drive yeah, a yeah, lawnmower yep, 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 over yep, yep, your yep. house. Yep. Oh, it's just it just drives me crazy. And you know what drives me crazy? If like they were delivering sick people to a hospital, it wouldn't bother me so much. Yeah. But it's someone's idea of fun, yeah. and they're driving over your house, and they don't give a fuck about you. Yeah. Oh. And and they have money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And and I just feel like I have more. 
I have more money than they do. Why is this happening? I'd be happy to rent the mirror above my house. They could pay me rent on huh. the air above my house. I'd be that me that make me happier. The, these, but then I heard I read the other day. You know, they have these propeller planes that are really quiet. Oh, really? But then these planes that they're using at the glider place, Hugh tells me they're from World War II. And so Hugh says, just look at it like it's a historical thing. And it's, no. No. You just got this guy just going over to our house, and they're just a stunt plane. And, you know, he's flying people who are, like, probably vomiting copiously out. Just, Have you called? Can you? I don't know. I've I've thought about it. I'm trying to figure out who to call. You know, call the airport. There's a there's a plane over my house. So what? Well, I shouldn't be able to fly that low though. Well, I figured I'm going to um, I'm going to pay this summer for a noise person to come out and monitor the noise level. Oh, really? And and I've got some other neighbors who who are on my side about it because they fly over their house too. Where? Let's see. Where do you live? Surrey is it? Sussex. Sussex. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.